Good morning. Welcome again to Branch of Hope, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Those will be our verses for this morning. But before we get there, I wanted to share with you in brief why I chose to exhort on this particular passage. I was talking to my wife this morning, sharing a little bit about the passage, the message that I've been preparing And she said, I think it would be really nice if you took some time or a minute, not some time, but brief, uh, to share your heart behind this passage so people kind of have an idea of where you're coming from. And so for those of you who know my wife, she's sweet and genuine and sincere. And so I thought that would be a great way to open. And so I'm taking her advice uh, this morning. So one of the main reasons I ended up on this passage uh, is really to encourage us all, right? You know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm an elder here at, at the church. And so I see life from a variety of perspectives, and I'm reminded that whatever age or stage we are at in life, uh, there's challenges, right? There's difficulties, and there's temptations. And so every Sunday morning, we begin with our congregational prayers collectively before the Lord, so we kind of know how heavy life can be. And there's even things going on beyond that in each of our lives. And so uh, at the heart of this passage, I believe, it tells us who we are in Christ. Right? It deals with our heart before God and our heart as it relates to our neighbors, our friends, and our families. So above all, I chose this passage, and I hope and pray that it's both an encourager and an instructor for all of us here and for those listening online, wherever we find ourselves um, at this time in our lives. So, uh, hear now the word of God. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would superintend this message. Every word would be for your glory and for the edification of of us, Lord, uh, the hearers. Father, I pray that you would just reveal to us your truth about who you are and and who we are in you. And Lord, that you would use this uh, scripture to instruct us, correct us, and train us for righteousness, Lord, that we would be prepared for every good work that you have prepared for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the passage before us is probably one of the more well-known passages in scripture. It's known as the Beatitudes, and Beatitude simply means a state of utmost bliss or complete happiness that comes from being blessed by God. And it is in this passage where Jesus declares 
the type of characteristics and attitudes of someone who is indeed truly blessed. And just to give you an idea of where we're headed this morning, uh, I want us to first look at these Beatitudes kind of in the larger context of Scripture, right, and the ministry of Christ. And then I want us to look a little bit about the Beatitudes as a whole, kind of overarching those eight Beatitudes, what we can glean from them collectively. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what it really means to be blessed, right, this word that gets used quite often in conversation. And then we will look a bit more closely at each individual beatitude. And finally, how do we respond to what Jesus declares here, right? How do we live in light of these truths? So that's kind of a a roadmap for where we're going to be headed. And so to begin, we find ourselves here in the early part of Jesus's first recorded public sermon, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And he's at the beginning of his public ministry. And if we look at the historical context, this is really God formally speaking for the first time after a period of roughly 400 years. Right, so different teachers have commented or pointed out that the book of Malachi, right, the end of the Old Testament canon, ends with the, literally with the word curse. Right? It says, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. But the prophet Amos, my good friend uh, Dr. Eddie reminded me recently, really captures kind of the reality of the spiritual famine that Jesus was stepping into as he began his ministry. And so Amos 8 reads this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And now as Pastor Paul has emphasized in his teaching through Revelation, he's been talking about this great darkness that Jesus was stepping into when he started his ministry in the first century. And it's not hard to imagine how dark the hearts of man could be after 400 years of a famine of the Word of God, of silence, right? So today in America, we literally have God's Word, sermons galore right at our fingertips, Right? And even with that, even in the midst of that, we've seen our culture take a complete nosedive in just a few short decades. And so can you imagine the darkness that could be in man after 400 years of silence? It's hard to fathom. Yet we see here Jesus opening his first public sermon with this series of statements talking not about cursing, but about blessing. And so the light of the world has come into the darkness as Jesus goes about healing and proclaiming and teaching the kingdom of God and what it means to be a part of that kingdom. And so narrowing in a little bit to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in particular has been referred to as a sort of Christian manifesto, a public declaration of the way in which Christians ought to live as we go about our lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, Jesus declares what his kingdom is all about, right? Some of the things it tells us about our true blessedness, about being salt and light, about teaching the law. Great are those who teach the law. It magnifies the law and its requirements. It talks about being generous, loving our enemies, true humility. It teaches us how to pray, the importance of laying up treasures in heaven, the importance of knowing God's care for us and how that should put an end to all of our worries talks about the narrow road that leads to life, knowing people by their fruit, the danger of false conversion, and how we are to build our house on the rock, which is the word of God. 
And in light of the Great Commission, the Sermon on the Mount may just be the most effective means of evangelism that we could ever imagine. If we could live out the principles taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we would literally turn the world right side up. The gates of hell would not stand a chance. If we all were teaching the law in its true nature, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, caring for the lamp of our body, what our eyes see and what our ears hear. If we were diligent, asking, seeking, knocking, laying up treasures in heaven, judging rightly, building our house on the rock, if we could live in that way, it would impact the world beyond anything we could imagine. And so in this way, we would be letting our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so this entire Sermon on the Mount, all of this stuff that Jesus unpacks, this entire way of living and impacting the world around us, it all starts with these Beatitudes. And so what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are objective statements about the character of those individuals who are truly blessed those individuals who are true citizens of God's kingdom. And the Beatitudes are not things that we are to try to be and do in order to be blessed. That would be kind of the wrong way to read them and respond to them. And the Beatitudes are more declarative statements. Right? They tell us what we actually are if we belong to Christ. These are ontological statements. They're statements of being about those people who are true citizens of God's kingdom. So if you are here this morning, a born-again citizen of God's kingdom, a new creation in Christ, these are statements about who you really are. And these are not statements about the natural disposition of certain people. Right? There are not people who are born naturally poor in spirit. There are not people who are born naturally meek. Not in this objective biblical sense that indicates blessing. These are character traits that are spiritually wrought. These are character traits that are grace-filled, right? And they speak of someone who is born again, right? Someone who has placed their faith in Christ to save them from their sins. And so in light of that, if you were to meet someone who claims to be a Christian, yet has none of these traits in their life, you, you could rightly wonder about their salvation. And on the other hand, if you were to meet someone who claims to be a Christian who has mastered these traits you could rightly question their honesty and their salvation because they don't truly understand their need for Christ. And so you see, similar to the law of God, these beatitudes are not something we can ever obtain on our own strength, nor will we ever exhibit these traits perfectly on this side of heaven. But if our hearts have truly been made new, right, these traits, being poor in spirit, being meek, being hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and so on. These will be things we long for and desire to be, even while we look at ourselves and see that we fall short of their standard on a regular basis. And so now people debate the number of Beatitudes here in Matthew. Some say there's seven. Some say there's eight. Some say there's nine. I'm pretty sure there's eight. And if we look at them as a whole, there's some interesting things to consider kind of collectively. Uh, the first and last Beatitude those who are poor in spirit, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It, both, it says that both of them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? It's a statement of a present reality. All the other ones in between, they say 
they shall be comforted, they will be comforted, they will be shown mercy, called sons of God, and so on. And so these are future-looking statements. And so in the midst of these future-looking statements and present-day realities, we have this already-but-not-yet kind of truth, right, which is something not uncommon to Scripture and to our salvation. Right? Regarding our salvation, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so in our salvation, there is this reality that we have been made perfect, right? We've been set apart as holy. We've been justified. We've declared righteous in Christ. But we're also moving forward in our sanctification, becoming more holy on a daily basis by grace and faith through Christ. And so we've been set apart as holy, but we're also in the process of being made holy. And so this is a concept we see in these Beatitudes. And so part of what that means is that, yes, we have been comforted, but we will continue to be comforted, right? Yes, the earth is our inheritance in Christ. It's a done deal. But the full realization of that is yet future. We have been filled, yet we continue to be filled. We have been shown mercy, and we will continue to be shown mercy. And so there's also a structure and a progression to the Beatitudes, not too dissimilar from the Ten Commandments. Just as there is a first and second table of the law, right? The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The second six commandments deal with our relationship with our neighbor. In a similar way, the first four Beatitudes really deal with our relationship with God, our heart condition, right? And it culminates in the middle with us hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then we are filled. And then it transitions from there. The outworking of that is that we become merciful. Our hearts, desires are made pure. They change. We become peacemakers. And so another interesting parallel to consider is that when we think about the basis for the law of God, right, from which the commandments flow, we know that the law is a reflection of God's perfect character, right? And similarly, who is it that the Beatitudes describe? Who is the truly meek one? Who is the truly merciful one? Who is pure in heart? Who is the true peacemaker? Who is the one who is reviled and persecuted for righteousness' sake? It is Christ. The only one who lived out the Beatitudes perfectly was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the image of what we are being conformed to on a daily basis. And so moving on to this idea of blessing, Right, what does it mean to be truly blessed? Right, the word blessing gets used fairly commonly today, and it usually means good fortune or well wishes. But the true idea of blessing is much grander than that. If we look briefly at the etymology of the form of the word blessed, we see that the word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. And makarios is an adjective that means happy, or blissful, and it comes from the root word makar, which means to be happy. And I think the word happy needs to be qualified because this is not happiness in the world's sense of happiness, which is based on circumstance or bank accounts, but it is a true lasting happiness or joy that is rooted in who God is 
and what he has done. And also, putting this word kind of into its first century context, Jesus is speaking in the midst of a Greek culture where the Greek poet Homer, for example, spoke of the Greek gods as blessed, this word makarios, right? Homer used that. And that the blessedness of these so-called gods was due to the fact that they were unaffected by the world, right? They, were, they transcended the world. They dwelt above it, this world which was subject to poverty, to weakness, to death, right? And so in first century Greek thought, these gods were not poor, right? They had everything. These gods were not weak, they were powerful, and these gods weren't sad, they were the epitome of a life of bliss, and it was because of these traits that they thought they were blessed. So when Jesus comes in and says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the sad, the meek, it was a major countercultural understanding of what it means to be blessed. Right? So imagine the onlooking crowds, Jesus is teaching his disciples, kind of drawn up on this mount. He looks at his disciples, but the crowds are there in the background watching this. And Jesus has been healing all kinds of diseases. He's been preaching. And so there is this awe and wonder about this man. And now he's teaching something entirely contrary to their way of thinking, to their worldview. Right? He's proclaiming his kingdom principles in the public square, declaring the true king has come and the true God of creation is here. And so we've talked about this a little bit in our recent apologetics conference on the kingdom of God, how Jesus is beginning the work of creating a new culture founded on his kingdom principles. And the Beatitudes, again, the Beatitudes, the character traits of these kingdom citizens are really right at the heart of this culture-changing reality, this world-changing way of living. And so what do the inspired scriptures say about a person who is blessed? Psalm chapter 1, I think, has one of the best summaries. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so again, the logical order of things here is important. Right? Psalm 1 isn't saying that if you do these things, right, if you read his word day and night, if you check these boxes, that you'll be blessed. Right? It's rather saying that this is the way a blessed person will be. Right? They will delight in God's word. They will meditate on it day and night and so on. And it's in direct contrast to the wicked or the cursed or the ungodly, who are like chaff which is blown away, who will collapse under God's judgment and who will ultimately perish. And so a blessed person is thus someone who will stand forgiven and right before God one day, as opposed to a cursed or wicked person who will be found guilty before God one day. And so it's also important to understand that this blessedness that the Bible speaks of describes God himself in the scriptures. So from Psalm 68, 
O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Psalm 119, 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. And in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So this idea of blessedness, what it means to be blessed, is true of God himself. right? Therefore, if what, if, what it means to be blessed is true of God himself, then it is also true of Christ. And if it's true of God and true of Christ, then the only people who can possibly partake or experience true blessedness are those who partake of God and partake of of Christ. There is no blessedness or being blessed apart from being in relationship with God through Christ. So as the Apostle Peter states, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are partakers of the divine nature, and by extension we know and experience true godly blessedness. Now let's take a little closer look at some of these Beatitudes individually. One of the first things to notice is that these Beatitudes are not new ideas that Jesus is plucking out of thin air, but they are descriptions of God's people that we see throughout the scriptures. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at Isaiah 61.1 and Isaiah 66.2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61.1. In Isaiah 66.2, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. And so briefly, those who are poor in spirit are those who understand that they have nothing to offer spiritually to God. Right? They are like the man in Luke 18 who stood before God, beat his chest, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So being poor in spirit is admitting that because of your sin, you are completely destitute spiritually and can do nothing to deliver yourself from your dire situation. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he is declaring that before we can enter into God's kingdom, we must recognize the utter worthlessness of our own spiritual currency and the inability of our own works to save us. Next, we have blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So let's go back to Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. It says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So what a beautiful passage, right? When we When we sin against God, we should experience our most intense grief, right? When we sin against God, we should experience our most intense mourning. 
when we sin against God, we should experience our most intense sorrow. We should be utterly broken and disgusted over even the smallest of sins. And this sorrow is the godly reaction to a poverty of spirit. And that is right where God meets us, right? We see in this passage five different ways that he comforts the mourning and the brokenhearted, right? Where he exchanges the the mourning for the oil of joy and for garments of praise. And the Apostle Paul also speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so godly sorrow, mourning over our sin, leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. And this is how a blessed citizen of God's kingdom responds to their sinful estate. Next, we have blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the words of Jesus in this beatitude echo Psalm 37, 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. John Calvin, there's a bit of a lengthy quote here um, that I'll read regarding, regarding this passage, but it's a good one, so... Uh, Bear with me. It says, So we must wait patiently to possess the inheritance which Christ has promised and to claim the earth as his gift to us. We should be content to pursue our course to the end and complete our earthly pilgrimage. Regardless of where we are, regardless of the trials we bear and the oppression and losses we endure, we should, I say, be content to trust God's assurance and the testimony of our conscience that all will be ours because we are his children and heirs. Furthermore, we should stop envying the proud, the violent, and the domineering who think they have everything when, like brute beasts, they have come out on top. That is, in essence, what this verse teaches us. We should thus place our Lord's protection above the impulse to retaliate or defend our cause. And so a spirit of meekness drives envy, covetousness, and pride out of our hearts, right, as we entrust ourselves and our prosperity to our Heavenly Father, right? We can be content in all things and model Christ's behavior, who didn't need to defend his cause, although he could have called thousands of angels to his side, but he entrusted himself to the protection and the will of his Father, And this leads us to what I find one of the most intriguing aspects of meekness seen in Matthew 11, 29, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And so what we see here is that when Jesus calls us to come to him, right, to take his yoke upon himself, to learn from him, It is on the basis of his meek and lowly character, right? Come to me because I am meek. And that's a huge truth to grasp, especially as we are called to imitate Christ, right? We are called to fulfill the Great Commission and bring the gospel to those around us and to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And we are called to do this, right, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, in gentleness and meekness and much respect, So meekness is a central 
character trait of a blessed kingdom citizen and someone who knows Christ as Lord and Savior will be continually growing in meekness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A simple definition of righteousness is right standing with God. Right? A citizen of God's kingdom will then be someone whose life is marked by a hunger and a thirst for a right standing with God. Right? And the analogy is this. Right? If you, just as we desire life-giving food and life-giving water to survive so should we desire to be in a life-giving relationship with God. And we see this in Psalm 42 too. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then Proverbs 11.4 tells us that wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And since we who are poor in spirit know that we have no righteousness of our own, we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is only found in Christ by grace through faith. And while right, righteousness speaks of a right relationship with God, it also speaks of a right relationship with other people, with our neighbors, with our family. And this is kind of where the Beatitudes transition to more of the outworking of a changed heart. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is an interesting beatitude in the sense that it almost sounds like God withholds his mercy towards us until a future date when our mercy is evaluated to see if we are worthy to receive his mercy. Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall then receive mercy. But if you understand the gospel of the kingdom... Right, that God's kingdom has already come, then like the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, where Jesus, Jesus says, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Right, when we understand that our mercy is a result of his mercy, then the extending of mercies is only possible because of what he has done through Christ. And this The glorious truth to be recognized here, I think, is that it is the very mercy of God that is is responsible for anyone being drawn to Christ in the first place, right? We did not choose him first, he chose us. We did not come to him first, he drew us to himself, John 6, 44. We did not recognize Christ first, he opened our eyes, Matthew 16, 17. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. And all of this depends, as Romans 9.16 tells us, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So all glory belongs to him alone. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? And this is nothing new. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And so Scripture clearly states that only those who are pure in heart will see God. And seeing God is the idea of being permitted, admitted into his presence. And purity of heart speaks of God's regenerating work 
in the life of a believer. It speaks of a change at the very core of who we are, resulting in new desires, new affections, and new ways of living. Next, we have blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the Greek word translated peacemaker here is used only one other place in the New Testament in a slightly different form. It's in Colossians 1, verse 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There's the word peace. And so Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many in order to make peace between God and sinners. And so Jesus is the true peacemaker, right? He also is the only true begotten Son of God. And so when we carry this gospel message, the message of the cross to others, we become peacemakers ourselves. And as we become peacemakers, it makes sense that we are then called sons of God, for we are following in the footsteps of the true Son of God. And this call to be peacemakers is also seen in 2 Corinthians 5, which tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so blessed kingdom citizens will seek to be peacemakers in our own personal lives as well as in the world around us. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we've kind of come back full circle, right? The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven, and so do those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are the two bookends kind of of the Beatitudes. So you're poor in spirit, you're meek, you're merciful, you're a peacemaker. And just like they did to our Lord and Savior, What does the world do to people like that? They persecute them, right? And now we know that some people suffer for doing evil, right? But that is is called punishment, not persecution. We know that some persecuted are persecuted for reasons unrelated to righteousness. But Jesus wasn't speaking here of a general blessing to all victims of persecution for any cause, He speaks of it in relation to those who are persecuted for actively pursuing the kingdom of righteousness and because of their faith in Christ. In 1 Peter 2.20, we learn that it's commendable before God to suffer for doing good. And this beatitude echoes one of my favorite promises in the scriptures, which is a huge encouragement for us as it relates to being a peacemaker and bringing the gospel to those around us. It's from 1 Peter 4.14. It says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. And that's pretty much like a, a parallel of the Beatitude, right? If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Then it goes on to say, For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. So let's suppose you step out to share your faith with someone. Right? There, are, there are really three possible responses. Right? One response is that the person repents and believes and gets saved, right? which is definitely a win. Um, the second possibility is the person doesn't get saved, 
but you plant or you water a seed, which is also a win. And third, they reject you, they revile you, they reproach you for the sake of Christ. Right? Now, now, the third one might sound like a loss, but based on this beatitude, right, as well as 1 Peter 4.14, it's really a win because that rejection, in that rejection, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory rests upon you. Right? So how many of us in this room would like for the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory to rest upon us? Right? Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Right? Every time we step out in faith for the sake of Christ, it's guaranteed to be a winning situation. And so how do we respond to these truths, these beatitudes? One of the main takeaways to be encouraged with is to be reminded of how blessed we are to already possess, in part, the characteristics and power of the kingdom of God. As disciples of Christ, we should read these Beatitudes and hopefully we recognize these characteristics in our own lives, but not perfectly. Right? We know that we fall short, but that just grows in us a desire to be more like Christ and to lean into him more and more. But there's also the response of the crowds, right? these onlookers, in the background, listening in on these countercultural truths that Jesus was teaching to his disciples. And maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're not yet a disciple of Christ, but you're hearing these promises and blessings of eternal life and the realities of the citizens of the kingdom of God, and it is stirring up in you a desire to be the kind of person who is truly blessed. Right? And we would say that that's a good thing, and we would encourage you to come to Christ today. Right? As ruling elder Bob mentioned in our time of confession this morning, to put everything under the blood of Christ, to repent of your sin, to believe in Christ, right? to turn to Christ for life everlasting while he has given you time, for today is the day of salvation, and tomorrow is not a guarantee for any of us. And maybe after hearing these words of life and blessing this morning, you've understood them, and they don't stir anything in you at all. If that's you, then my prayer is that God would not leave you in such a hard and impenitent condition, but that he would have mercy on your soul and draw you to himself. And so in closing, the Beatitudes are words of declaration and celebration for those who belong to Christ, those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And they are words of invitation for those who are not yet in Christ, the onlookers, those who have come out maybe for the sake of tradition, for the sake of curiosity, or even the sake of skepticism. Yet for all of us, may these words be words of transformation, working in our lives by the power and mercy of our blessed God and Savior. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, we just thank you for this time to hear from you, to hear your word. Lord, I pray that whatever was from you this morning would fall in the hearts of the hearers on good soil, Lord. 
that it would grow deep and wide and strong and it would produce a crop a hundredfold, Lord. Pray for those, Lord, who are here and do not know you, that they would be drawn to you this morning, that they would be convicted of their sin, that they would be aware of their need for forgiveness and mercy, that they would run to Christ for life everlasting. We pray all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.